You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Hey there, everybody. This is Danny Anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. This time I'm joined by my good buddy, Nathan Gilmore, from down there in Emmanuel College. He is the full professor of English now, right? Full of all sorts of things, Danny. <laughs> I've always, we've always known that. Um, <laughs> so um, so Nathan and I you know, are colleagues from way back, and we continue to work together you know, fairly frequently through the podcast world. Um, both of us come from similar backgrounds and similar worlds, um, particularly in the teaching of writing. Um, and so I posted something recently on my Facebook page that was a guest post on John Warner's uh, Just Visiting blog on uh, Inside Higher Ed. And this was written by Jody Green, who's an Associate Vice Provost for Teaching and Learning uh, and Director of the Center for Innovations in Teaching and Learning at the University of California, Santa Cruz. Um, and this post, I think, uh, my guess is Warner asked her to write this based on a, uh, a Twitter thread that she started. And so, and this is sort of an expansion of that. But it did sort of, to me, speak to a fear that I've had as well um, in this era of uh, massive online teaching because of COVID. Um, the article was basically addressing the concerns that students are being overworked um, by the switch from in-person assignments and, and activities and testing to this online version of this. And I have kind of felt that myself. Um, um, and Nathan chimed in as he, as he likes to do. He's a, he's my, uh, he's my, the, the Satan to my whatever. <laughs> and so the accuser, right? Um, so, but he, uh, he chimed in with, um, a, a different perspective. Um, I think particularly on the teaching of writing. And so, um, Nathan, uh, I'll, I'll put the link to the essay in the, show notes for this. So, so folks can go listen or look at that real quick. It's not very long, but what is, what is your sort of point that you wanted to make about, um, the capacity? For, I know you've been a longtime advocate of teaching writing online. You've made it work really well mm-hmm. for you. And mm-hmm. so this has kind of like been a, a golden era for you in some ways, right? <laughs> and in other ways, not at all. Yeah. The piece is called the strange case of the exploding workload and it makes the, or it brings in, you know, some anecdotes and then also some survey data uh, that indicate that students, especially since March when the uh, COVID pandemic uh, forced a lot of schools to move their classes online, have experienced an increase in workload that has actually been psychologically harmful for them. Uh, and, you know, the, the debate to which Danny referred started when, you know, he posted a link to the article, which is an interesting article. You should have a look. And said, uh, well, yeah, I mean, when all of your professors are assigning, you know, a ton of, uh, did you use the phrase busy work in that post, Danny? I, I use it all the time, so I probably you did. You use so. it all the time, so let's say that you did. <laughs> it sounds uh, like something you know, I would say. Then, you know, they begin to resent that, and who can blame them? And I uh, immediately commented and said, well, I will blame them <laughs> if you're looking for someone to do so. And here's the, here's the case that I would make, and uh, I think this is where we can at least enter this conversation uh, is that, you know, when we are talking about a college education in the 21st century, uh, we're talking about something that happens as a combination of contact hours and then uh, outside of class hours. Right. And this is, I'm using those terms because that's the way that uh, Emmanuel colleges uh, credit our policy goes. And then the way that that policy goes is that, you know, for a credit hour, uh, there should be, I think the number is 14 hours of contact plus 28 hours of out of class work. Okay. Uh, and you know, recent studies before the pandemic, uh, have indicated that, you know, in American colleges specifically, I, I, I really can't comment on, uh, Latin American, European or Asian colleges, but in North American colleges, uh, that out of class work 
uh, I mean, has become far less than what it was even 30 years ago. So that, you know, when they, when they surveyed students, what they're finding is if they had, for instance, uh, a 15 hour, uh, 15 credit hour load, they might do, you know, 20 hours of work outside of class a week rather than the 30. And really that's on the high end of what they found. So, you know, the, the reason that I chimed in with that is that, you know, in this article, it was talking about these students uh, discovering that they're having to do hours of work every day, you know, along with the time that they were uh, engaged in their contact hours. And, you know, the, the first question that I would pose is, uh, are we really increasing their workload beyond uh, what we've been promising to the accreditation agencies, or are we just getting closer to what we've been promising but mm-hmm. not delivering to those accreditation agencies? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, that's that's one uh, angle that I would take. The other angle I would take is a little bit more philosophical, and it has to do with, uh, you know, my history. And, you know, for listeners who don't know, I'm also the director of a writing in the disciplines program at Emmanuel College called Composition Culture. And one of the things that I have been telling uh, faculty in my composition culture workshops for years, Danny was in a set of these. I love it. Very influential. Uh, I have to, I just want to pause and, and I am <laughs> constantly thinking about that. It's still to this day lives with me. Um, it was awesome. really, really important to me. Awesome. Well, one of the things that I'm always pushing is that uh, if our students are generating knowledge rather than simply receiving information, then they learn better. And here's the distinction that I'm trying to make there. Uh, receiving information you can do in a lecture, to be sure. You can do it watching a YouTube clip. You can do it reading a book. There's all kinds of different ways that you can receive information. And it can be, it can have a range of active and passive elements, right? If you are annotating uh, your book or if you are making index cards or if you're doing those sorts of things, it can be very active. What I advocate for is another level of activity where you are actually responding to those ideas for someone else to read, usually professor, but often classmates, and then receiving feedback on it, and then responding to that feedback so that the initial reception of the information is only the first step in a complex process of internalizing and dialoguing, uh, to use a a platonic word, uh, regarding the question at hand, right? Um, so, you know, those are the, the, the sorts of objections that I made. Um, and, you know, uh, yeah, I think we can kind of start there. I mean, you know, one, one of the concerns, Danny, that, you know, I, I'm not sure if I am guessing right or guessing wrong at your concern is that, you know, so much of discussion board based pedagogy uh, I'll, I'll grant you, I mean, I've been in these scenarios. It does kind of become busy work, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, let, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about, let, let's be Wittgensteinians for a moment. Uh, you know, when you are looking at busy work, how do you know you're looking at busy work? Yeah. And so I guess this is sort of where I think I'm coming down on the side of the article. It's more like the practice of online teaching. So it's, it's sort of the way in which these kind of ideal situations that you're describing um, mm-hmm. fail to translate, uh, or fail, they fail to kind of, um, capture what you're arguing for. Um, and in particular, I mean, the famous example is the discussion post where you're supposed to make some sort of thoughtful response to some text or question, and then uh-huh. you're supposed to respond to somebody else's response. And then the responses tend to be very kind of banal. And yes, I agree with what you said. Um, uh-huh. I, the sky is very blue. You're exactly right. And, and that sort of, you yes, know, yes, and, yes. and uh, those sorts of uh, just kind of rote answers. Right. Um, and honestly, also the fact that it's one thing in a particular class to learn well in that mm-hmm. way. But if you're a student who has five or six classes and all of your classes then become this overnight, um, it, I think that's, it's sort it's not, it's sort of the big picture that I'm looking for, right? It isn't so much okay. the fact that all the work in one particular class where it's actually doing some good is, uh, is expanded because of this more rigorous kind of thought. I think you're right. Um, but uh-huh. it's when that's spread across a lot of classes and the kind of uh, practice of these assignments are not much beyond just busy work. And 
maybe it's uh, – I mean, we could talk about good teaching practices, and I'm sure we will here. But, um, oh, but sure, I, sure. But I think that's sort of um, – like that's the emblem for this kind of problem is the discussion post that doesn't really contribute. It's just keeping them busy and doing something so that we can have something to grade. I can see that. And I I think that I am guilty of the same kind of, I'm going to say stereotyping, although I'm not sure if that's the precise term that I'm looking for uh, when it comes to other kind of pedagogies. Right. So, I mean, you know, I have been caught in the past um, and I'll cop to this. Uh, you know, stereotyping lecture classes as, you know, a passive information reception session, right? right. And, you know, my, my running joke is always, you know, we have this new educational technology uh, that makes that a lot less necessary. It's called the textbook. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's like a lecture, but you can carry it with you and make notes on it. Uh, and, you know, I realize, and you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of especially Chris Garretts, if he's listening to this, I mean, uh, he has, I, I, I can feel him rolling his eyes on the other side of Facebook when he and I have these exchanges. Um, but I realize that, that lectures do other things as well. Uh, but yeah. I also would, uh, you know, say that I've been in lectures where, uh, it is a repetition of what I have already read for class in the textbook. And, you know, if the only purpose for a lecture is to, for lack of a better term, coddle the students who don't read for class anyway, it seems like, I mean, that's a, that, that is time that you can spend on, you know, more dialogic ways of learning. Does that make some sense? Absolutely. And, and I completely agree with what you're saying there. I think that, um, there's a way in which, um, just performing what you know in front of people passes for teaching uh, in a lot of ways. And you actually posted something, I think it was today, I saw it today, um, basically talking about if you have a really polished um, speaker in a class, students think they're learning more than they actually are. Uh, and I think. Yeah, and that it, article posted a couple years ago, and, uh, you know, it confirmed some things that I had suspicions on, uh, but it put it in an educational psychological vocabulary that actually help me to explain it to other people rather than, you know, just having it as a, an intuition, if you will. Yeah. Um, keep and, rolling. And when it goes to the idea of active learning, right. And so if, if uh-huh. I, I kind of like, I have a, a I'm doing it right now, this kind of self-consciousness about a lack of eloquence on my own, uh, in my own speaking style. Right. I don't feel like mm-hmm. the best public speaker. Um, and the article made me feel a little better because the students are having to work to fill in all the gaps I leave for them. Uh, they're actually doing yes. more, <laughs> more learning than they would if I were this kind of polished Ted talky type sort of person. Right. And, uh, and so, uh, but the idea of active learning is, um, something that I think this electronic form of, of teaching and learning can do really well as you talked about at the beginning. Um, and I think the article, and then I went back and looked at the original Twitter thread that uh, Dr. Green had um, uh, initiated this conversation with. Yeah, well, why don't you say a little bit about that? Because I, I actually didn't see that Twitter thread, and now I am off Twitter. So well, it was I think a, I'd benefit from. I mean, it was basically a, a couple, You could the, the paragraphs from this came from, it was a, a, like five or six uh, thread, Twitter, Twitter thread. But one point she uh-huh. makes, or he, I don't actually, I assume it's a she, Jody Green. Um, but uh, I'll just say Dr. Ooh, Green. That can go either way. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just say Dr. Green, just to be safe here. Yes, um, that's good. Um, but the, uh, but Dr. Green makes the point um, in defense of this this teaching style is that maybe it's just that students have been getting by without doing the reading and they can sort of fake their way through class when everyone else is doing the talking for them. And now they actually uh-huh. have to do the reading in order to do the posts. And that's why they feel like they're doing more work. Right. And I totally okay. think that that is part of it. Um, absolutely. Uh-huh. And in fact, I for years now, whenever I teach a, a literature or a, horror, a film class, my practice is to have them do a pretty extensive discussion post about what they read before they come to class just to make them at least fake their way through the reading right Uh, if even if they're (laughs) even if they're only doing that at least they have something productive to uh to bring into class right and so i agree with that i think that that is probably a lot of why students are feeling overworked and it's kind of what you were saying at the beginning they're finally doing the amount of out of out of class work that they were supposed to have been doing all the time right Um, i i think that that is definitely a possibility um and uh, just to kind of 
I'm mostly on your side here. I think um, I, my disagreement <laughs> has more to do with practice than it does philosophy, um, right? And and I think yeah. Uh, and, and let me address. I mean, something that you brought up earlier. I mean, you know, the the style of um, discussion board assignment that says you know uh, respond to the reading and then respond to a classmate, and that's the extent of the guidance you get. Yeah, yeah, that is going to get you. I mean, a whole lot of. Uh, and, you know, I, I've taught my entire college career in the South. Southerners are very polite, except when they're not. Uh, and so, you know. Except when it comes to letting black of, people oh, vote. Yeah, well, you, you get a whole lot of, Sorry. you know. That was, I really that was liked what you for. said. I apologize. Go ahead. I really liked what you said. I like, you know, I think that you did a good job and things like that, right? So, I mean, one of the things that I've done is, first of all, in their initial post, I always require a minimum of two page number citations. Yeah. Oh, nice. Of whatever it is that they are reading. Uh, and I say you can you can quote directly or you can paraphrase, but you got to give me citations from at least two pages because that way I don't get a whole bunch of, you know, references to the first page of the reading and then nothing else. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> and then the other thing is uh, when they follow up with each other. What I do is I, I uh, created a handout, and this was several years ago for a philosophy class, called The Art of the Follow-Up Question. Mm -hmm. And I tried to create sort of a broad taxonomy of different ways you can follow up on a claim, right? So, I mean, what are its implications? Uh, what does a term within your, your claim mean? Uh, you know, is it this sort of thing or that sort of thing? Uh, I'm trying to think of what they are. I, I should know this since I've been using it for six years now. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and what I tell them is they don't get credit for their follow-up post unless they pose follow-up questions. Mm -hmm. And then their classmate has to respond to those follow-up questions so that I'm not doing all of the dialogical movement, right? And that, you know, first of all, that uh, allows a lot more dialogue without exponentially increasing my workload. Right. Because I am but a mortal. Uh, but then also, I mean, it does get students in the habit, uh, the intellectual habit, I would call it, of, you know, posing real questions to each other rather than just saying, I agree or I disagree. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And, <laughs> and, there, I get that. and, and that's all I'm going to say. No, no. Um, <laughs> an example. You did a really good job with that post. <laughs> And I'm going to cite an example from from uh, from my own teaching here um, of of how this works well and how it, honestly it works better online than it did in class. And I've been doing this since yeah. before the pandemic. Um, I teach a class; uh, it's a senior capstone class here, and um, uh, we use the craft of research. Um, we have them read along by Booth, Colomb, and Williams. Um, yep. we, uh, we have them, uh, read that book along while they're kind of developing their project. Um, and it's always been difficult for me because we have them read, you know, it's a once a week class and you're supposed to read the first eight chapters for the second class, right? And getting, Ooh. getting a conversation going out of that is, well, the problem is th this whole, all our capstone is like condensed into like three quarters of a semester. So it's sort of at a breakneck pace. So we have to get all this done at the beginning. Man, the I'll first say. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, the, um, the, the, the problem with that was I, it was very difficult to actually have a productive conversation about those chapters because they don't really have a firm project yet. First, first of all, there's nothing kind of, um, concrete to apply it to and everybody's working on wildly different projects and so yeah. we can't even have sort of a focus conversation so a couple of years ago what i took to do was make that uh, a before class discussion thing and i gave them particular questions um to respond to applying that reading to their project and process right now um and for example one of the things i have them do for next week is um this is the first week of class this week so next week will be our first kind of real meeting um based on this is mm -hmm. in the one chapter i think it's chapter three where it talks about formulating a, a research question um yep. i i have them actually put that into By practice way, listeners I, I teach this book every year but to freshman writers yes yeah 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 <laughs> um it, it's a it's a really great book and um and and yeah. I, I have uh i'm very happy we use it actually but um but the idea then is to um uh, apply that specifically to your project so these discussion posts posts um end up having like a personal stake to them and they're not rote um just mm -hmm. paraphrases of what they read and so that's a, a i think an example of how online teaching kind of works well uh and, and the kind of uh -huh. writing based things right um my i guess my big problem with this is and i want to kind of read 
uh, some from one of the paragraphs here about a couple of yeah. conversations that the author thinks we should have based on this. The second conversation is in many ways the more urgent one, or at least it's differently urgent. Anyone reading this piece who keeps up with conversations about post-secondary education and especially about college-level education equity is aware that many of the changes we've made during COVID are the ones that experts in teaching and learning have been trying to get instructors to make for decades, right? And uh -huh. so we have been hearing about all these best practices for teaching, right? And now we're actually doing it, and uh -huh. there's a lot of problems with it, right? And so it's like um, in, in the practice of it, right? And I, I just want yes, to give an – Yes, yes. Okay, uh, thank you for adding that. Yeah, yeah. And not and But – it, it comes from the theorists, I think, in a lot of ways, okay? And so... Say a little bit more. Well, and this is my kind of normal Matthew Arnold suspicion of technocracy and machinery, right? Okay. <laughs> um, and so this is... That's my perspective on this. Um, mm -hmm. But... Um, so, I, I guess there's only... There's no way I can do this without talking about a real story... <laughs> From my school, and so um, I don't. Oh, keep rolling, keep this rolling. is not like uh, uh, meant to shame anybody or anything, but because we're doing this all very quickly, um, we were given this rubric. It's called um, I keep wanting to say CRISPR, um, but that's not it. That's the gene <laughs> editing thing. Um, there's some rubric. And by the way, Danny was an ep on an episode <laughs> of the uh, Book of Nature about yeah. just such that technology, which is why I can't think of the real name now. Um, <laughs> um, but there's some some rubric that were it's some acronym that that comes out with some word that sounds almost like CRISPR, but that's not quite it. Um, and I can't think of it off the top of my head because I can't get CRISPR out of the way. But, um, right. but the, um, but the, the idea is all of these things need to be in a well-designed class, right? And so yes. now all of the teachers, I, I'm your amen corner so far, okay. Danny. Okay. <laughs> so all of, as teachers, we're like stuffing a canvas page full of all these little boxes and, and documents that we know students are never going to read. It makes, yeah, um, the class unwieldy to them, just like an overlong syllabus, right? Yep, um, and, yep. and I think a lot of student or a lot of teachers in trying to check all the boxes on that rubric um, for best practices for online teaching um, are throwing way too many things in that dilute what we're actually trying to do in terms of course goals in that class, right? right? In right. any given class. And so for me, it isn't so much the idea, it's the implementation of it, right? And so in our case, they gave us a template for an online class, which at the same time they were telling us, these aren't really online classes, they're hybrid classes. Well, then I shouldn't have to use the online rubric because that's a totally yeah, different precisely, thing. Precisely. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and so, and so um, that's sort of me, you know, complaining about a place that I dearly love and have no other complaints about, right? Um, but uh, where I work. And so, but this is, I think, just a, a small kind of microcosmic example of what's been going on across the board in teaching um, in this new environment. And so I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. And, I, and this is where, you know, I, uh, I find some way to irritate everybody. That's, <laughs> that's one of my spiritual gifts. Uh, but I, I do think that administrators are far too eager to impose from above one size fits all measures for these sorts of things. Right. So what you just now narrated is the Oscar uh, rubric. It's the Oscar rubric. I just remember it's the that. Oscar, okay. not the CRISPR. Okay. Very okay. good. Uh, and, and it makes Danny grouchy. But, um, you know, I mean, in, in that story that you just now told, uh, there was this list of boxes that you have to tick. And it did not emerge from the goals and the aims and the purposes that are inherent to the course, but rather it is dropped onto the course like a heavy object, you know, from Wiley Coyote, usually on Wiley Coyote, right? Um, so, I mean, I, I and, and this is where, uh, you know, I, I get in a lot of interesting conversations, frankly, with people who are suspicious of educational technology, of, you know, scholarship of teaching and learning, uh, is that, you know, I am at the same time, uh, genuinely interested in these new ideas, right? Mm -hmm. I am also an Aristotelian, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, if you are imposing from outside rather than uh, developing from inside uh, these measures, then, yeah, I think that you can reasonably expect them to go wrong, right? What I'm far more interested in when I read uh, educational theorists, and I'm talking to everyone from John Dewey up to whoever published their study last week, right? is not 
what kinds of stencils can we lay down so that everyone has to conform to them? But what questions are they raising that I wasn't raising before I read them? Mm-hmm. Okay. And for that reason, uh, you know, really the discussion boards and I, I you know, you said earlier that I, I teach a lot of writing online. That's true. I don't use a lot of discussion boards in my writing classes. I use them a lot more for my literature and philosophy classes. Mm-hmm. And the way that I do it, again, you know, emerges from experimenting from year to year and developing new questions that I didn't know were questions until the questions came up. Right. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, uh, in, you know, my uh, online philosophy classes, uh, which are completely asynchronous, um, I, I recently went to a partial hybrid model where I did a voluntary uh, once every few days Zoom meeting so that students who benefit from that can come and do it. But students who are going to just sit there with their cameras off don't have to raise my anxiety by sitting there silent and invisible, right? Uh, the uh, the reverse panopticon model of teaching. <laughs> um, on the other hand, you know, I used to do just straight up uh, discussion boards for, you know, my, again, my online religion and philosophy classes. I have added to that what I call solo reading engagements, where I do just five questions. They're all open book. You have to cite a page number for each of them. And if it is a, uh, you know, 20 page assignment, reading assignment, then I try to space it out so that each question comes about four pages away from the others in the reading. And, you know, what I do is I make it just a one sentence, cite a page number kind of reading assignment so that at the very least, like you said earlier, students at least have run their eyeballs over the pages before they ever get to the discussion boards. Mm -hmm. Because then when they get to the discussion boards, they have a better chance. And again, it's not a guarantee. No one bites a thousand. But they have a better chance of engaging with the complexity of what we are reading, whether it be Friedrich Nietzsche or Dante or whoever else. Uh, rather than just going with, you know, a quote from the first page of the reading and then a story about when they were in high school, right? Um, now, the thing is about those, you can find analogous suggestions to those in John Bean or in, you know, any number of, you know, recent uh, best practices. I hate that phrase, by the way. Um, best practices for what? <laughs> I always want to ask. Uh Again, Aristotelian. Um, But, you know, I mean, you can find analogous things in those theorists, uh, but I don't use everything from every theorist. I use the things that I've encountered there that then arise in the actual conduct of the courses that I teach, Mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, for me to say that, you know, everything that I do comes from my own genius and my own experience is a mistake to say we need to impose from above everything that these theorists do is also a mistake. You can benefit from both of those if you are willing to do some dialectic with it. Um, exactly. Um, I completely agree with you. And like I said, I, I suspected that we were Danny, kind of, you're no fun. Well, but I, I suspected <laughs> at the beginning that we were having kind of two, di- we were, had two angles that we were taking to this, right? And mine yeah, was yeah. more institutional, uh, in its critique and yours was more philosophical. Oh, sure, sure. Um, and, uh-huh. and, and I could completely agree with your philosophy because of the practice, the institutional practice of implementing, yes. um, these things, right? And so, uh-huh. um, and so for me, I mean, all of this traces back to, I mean, really, it's a function of our entire society being um, mechanized and routinized, and we all have to um, be yes. accountable and accessible for everything that we do, uh-huh. right? Um, and so you mentioned Panopticon in sort of a joking way, but coming with all of these new technologies, now people are freaking out, oh, they could be cheating um, when they take my test, right? And so now I have to have some kind of spyware that I put on their computer. Um, then write different kinds of tests, this dear is, heavens. This is my point, right? <laughs> and, and so, yeah. And, so, and, and again, that's where, I mean... The question emerges from within the practice. The answer should also emerge from within the practice. Go ahead. Sorry. But you, that's you not me ranting there. But the problem is that's <laughs> not accessible to the people who care about like um, numbers and uniformity. Right. Um, and yeah, so yeah. the it, bean counters want beans. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And, and so um, the problem, the, the this is what we're running up against. And so. 
my kind of anxiety about teaching in this time is this is the moment when all of those people get their dream come true, right? When every little yeah, word that yeah. anybody writes gets to, has to be run through some sort of like measurement, um, uh, filter of some sort so they can put it in a spreadsheet and prove to somebody that they're doing something, right? Um, and, right, and so this right. is, um, th- this is my problem with that. And back to the idea of like the tests and the cheating, right? Um, uh-huh. honestly, we should know better. People like us should know better because how many tests have we taken in our lives to get to the advanced degrees that we've, you know, stumbled yeah, into, yeah. you know? And so I can't remember anything that I, I can't remember what passed those tests. I don't know, remember the content um, that got me A's on those tests or B's or whatever I got on those right, tests. Right. right? Um, but, and so what do I care if somebody looks up an answer that I asked them on a on a test, that's a form of learning then, right? They they at least know how to find the answer. That's really all I'm looking for. Can I, can I attempt a, a response to that? Yeah, go ahead. Because here's where, I mean, again, I think that, you know, the combination of educational psychological research and practices internal to the course really can inform each other uh, because, uh, and I'm trying to think of the name of the book. I think it's called Making It Stick. Okay. Okay. Uh, but it makes the case and, and, you know, it, it's rooted in, you know, uh, uh, controlled, you know, educational psychological experimentation uh, that short, low stakes tests of recall actually give a student better access to concepts that they are picking up for the first time mm-hmm. so that they are better able to use them in more complex tasks later. All right. So what that means is not that you have a final exam that's 50% of the grade and it's all multiple choice. What it does mean is that if you can establish a culture of honor or a culture of, I mean, I'd rather do honor than surveillance. I'm also a medievalist. But, uh, you know, what I do, for instance, when I'm teaching Old English, which I'm teaching this semester, uh, is instead of reading quizzes, or vocabulary quizzes, which students could very, very easily cheat on. Mm -hmm. And frankly, I don't want to watch their webcams to see if they're doing it, right? What I do is uh, every, I think it's every week and a half or so, uh, there's 10 of them over the course of the semester. Uh, What I do are called honor checks. And I say, all right, you know, as far as the short-term memory stimulus, going through a set of flashcards does the same work as a vocabulary quiz. So what they do is the students sign an honor statement every week and a half saying, I have gone through my stack of vocabulary cards from word one to word 30 twice. Yeah. I have also copied out by hand this grammar paradigm and that grammar paradigm because, again, psychological research indicates that forming the letters with your hand rather than typing them or, God help us, copying and pasting them yeah. uh, actually improves your later capacity to use those concepts on more complex tasks, right? So instead of doing quizzes, which I would do if I were in a classroom, this, you know, pandemic setting, uh, you know, made me think of something different. And so what I did is these honor checks where every week and a half, they tell me I have done this list of four tasks, right? Uh, And then, you know, at the end, just because it's my class, I say, uh, Remember that God is watching. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so far, and, you know, we're not very far into the semester. We're, uh, you know, you just started, what, this week, you said? Yeah, this week online, yeah. I I think we're in uh, week three of our classes because Emmanuel starts everything early. Yeah. Um, But so far, students have told me that, uh, you know, they are getting the benefits of, the short-term memory stimulus without the anxiety of the vocabulary quiz. Mm. Now, you know, might they be, you know, blowing smoke where students sometimes blow smoke? Sure. But, you know, right now they don't really have any reason to because, you know, the honor statement, I give them full credit if they say they've done it. Yeah. I, I, I'm in a similar boat. I, um, uh, I, I don't like, I mean, I have a cumulative like knowledge quiz at the end of a literature class, say, right? Um, yeah. but I usually make it about 30% multiple choice questions that I figure okay. if they did all the reading, they would recognize the answer, right? Uh, about yeah, characters yeah. and what events and uh-huh. that sort of thing, right? Um, but most of the, most of the test is based on 
um, a short answer or a, a short essay in which I give them a concept and I let them pick and choose whatever text they feel most comfortable applying to it. Right. So I, Absolutely. It's more, that's it, all my exams. Yeah, right there. It's, it's more important. Except I don't even do 30% multiple choice. I do all essays Yeah, <laughs> and I do an open book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's <laughs> yeah. I, I let them do the, yeah, obviously now I think whatever they have the open books. Right. Yeah. But, um, and, and, and really Danny, I mean, when I get back in the classroom, I think I am going to stick with the honor checks rather than going back to vocabulary quizzes because as far as creating a culture of learning rather than a culture of surveillance, yeah, I think that that does better work. Yeah. We really should have had Megan von Bergen on this uh, episode because she's really, um, she does a lot of research and she's very heavily invested in the idea of ungrading um, and these sort yes, of gating, yes. grading contracts and stuff. Maybe that should just be a separate um, episode with her and you at some point down the road where we, we sort uh-huh. of talked about that as a concept, um, which yeah. I, I love the concept. Um, I, just shudder at the thought of trying to running it, running it past the people who keep numbers. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And so, uh, oh, like, sure, sure. <laughs> I shudder at the, I shudder at the political battle. Um, that would, that well, would and, I, and I had a recent conversation with Megan on Facebook, you know, saying basically the same thing. I, I, I have learned to navigate between Scylla and Charybdis, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Although, you know, ask, ask me next week when I get caught. Right. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I have managed to, teach such that i i give the bean counters beans to count yeah but they don't really connect in any existentially important way to the teaching and learning that i do yeah no that's a really good point and 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 your point about like um uh small increments increments of of learning along the way um is well taken uh-huh. as well i always i mean i think of that mostly when i design classes like um particularly i'm thinking particularly like content-based classes like literature or film or whatever other things uh-huh, I teach. Uh-huh. Um, to me, uh, I, I'm not so much interested in giving them a checklist of books that they really need to read before they die be, to be an educated person or something. This is, sure, you know, sure. I'm not an Alan Bloom type, right? In that way. Um, and, um, or her, J or E.D. Hirsch. Yeah, um, Seymour Hirsch. Seymour Hirsch. Yeah. No, is it, was it Seymour? Yeah, Hirsch, whatever his name was. Yeah. One the, of those Hirsches. The cultural capital <laughs> guy, right? And so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, I I don't really believe that so much. I mean, there are books that uh-huh. you would benefit to read, but I don't think that makes you an educated person, per se, to read. Um, it's me about the conversations um, that books are having uh-huh. across time. And so um, my practice in teaching something like that is to set up a, a, a variety of subjects, themes, uh, conversations, controversies um, throughout time and compare and contrast along the way. Um, mm-hmm. the way that these different works sort of tackle those questions about, you know, femininity or whatever, right? In, in a horror sure. film class, we always go to, um, you know, feminism and stuff a lot. And so, mm-hmm. um, there's a, uh, to me, that's a much more, um, uh, useful way of main, reinforcing these important concepts because you're doing it just a little bit at a time, right? It's not something they have to memorize once, um, but it's something that they're sort of actively wrestling with and, and creatively putting into practice um, as they do their yeah. comparisons and contrasts. Right. And so, uh-huh. um, and, and so the, when you try to distill that into a rubric of best practices for online learning, um, it often doesn't work. And the, the best way that a teacher who hasn't really been trained in online teaching um, um, can do it is to come up with things that sort of feel recognizable in in forms. And that's why discussion boards um, are because I'm old. I mean, I'm old, but I'm not old enough that we, we had discussion boards when I was in college too. Yes, right? yes, you, yes. You know yes. what I'm saying? Um, and they, so, they were used that, but I had them. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, it's a, it's a, it's a media I understand. <laughs> and listeners, right? if you understood that reference, God bless you. <laughs> it's a media I understand, right? You know, and so sure. if you had AOL <laughs> back in the day, yeah, you, there understand, you, go. <laughs> you understand the discussion board, right? And so, um, this is, uh, I think why a lot of people go to that and they stuff it full of these things just to give themselves something to evaluate, right? Uh, And that becomes the primary goal in these classes. And so I do agree with the kind of central thesis or central question that the the piece is asking that students are being overworked um, by this class. It isn't because the idea behind online learning is flawed. It's the, the implementation of it. Uh, And, and I blame the, I mean, the, 
bureaucrats and the technocrats, right? I, I blame Silicon Valley for all of this. <laughs> How many things have they been trying to sell you since this thing started? Like, haven't you're like... Well, I, I, I showed you that meme, and if you want to uh, post it on the show notes, uh, you can, but I... I actually have started replying to every ad for educational software with a uh, little meme that I made up. Okay. It's a, uh, it's a, oh crud. What, what, what's the actor's name? Columbo. Um, oh, oh yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, Peter Falk. Peter Falk. Thank you for, um, uh, <laughs> in his role in Princess Bride. And, uh, the meme just says, when I was your age, educational technology was called books. <laughs> exactly. And I, I have sent that meme now to, I think, eight different educational tech companies and it hasn't slowed one of them down <laughs> they just to them i mean that shows you the folly of their process right that just says oh there's they're there they're interested they responded <laughs> there you I, go. I can there calculate you through my algorithm that they're interested in our product right and so yeah um and, and yeah and so i think this is sort of the tip of a of a bigger iceberg about the role of of, of the overextension of Technology of, I mean, I don't, there's a, an intersection here that I don't even know where to begin and where to end, but you have uh, like people making money. There's technology. There's professional development. There's like academic uh, credentials. Uh All of these things sort of come into play with the selling of this new material to speak into this moment. And I think that there's real danger for actual student investment in, in college. Oh, I think you're right. And, and you know, as usual, I'm going to try to, to address a web 2.0 question with a platonic phrase. Okay. Uh, but, you know, I mean, one of the one of the phrases that Socrates, you can rely on him to come back to in, in dialogue after dialogue in, in Plato's dialogues uh, is for the sake of. Right. Uh, you know. We practice mathematics for the sake of focusing our souls on eternal things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, that for Plato, that is what education is all about, is to develop the intellectual habits and disciplines uh, to actually contemplate things beyond what is immediate and urgent and so on and so forth, right? Uh, that's, you know, the, the, the last third or so of Republic, okay? Uh, now, I mean, I would make modifications to that, being a, a, a Christian educator rather than a Platonic educator, but... I would still want to ask at every turn for the sake of what, right? Uh, so, I mean, for instance, if a if an ed tech company wants to sell me a question bank uh, to make, you know, very, very efficient multiple choice exams, I'm going to ask for the sake of what? Why is it that we are examining students? Mm-hmm. What is it that we're hoping to accomplish? What is it that we're hoping to discern? What is it that we're hoping to form in the students? And, you know, for that reason... Uh, and again, I, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and say it again, because uh, I think I just hinted at it earlier, but I want to say it directly. I have been around my institution long enough, and I've been a pain in the butt at my institution long enough, that they largely let me teach my classes the way I teach my classes. Mm-hmm. They also can rely on me to be fairly current with scholarship of teaching and learning, right? It's just that I'm not going to take it in the way that the educational technology companies want me to take it in. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, part of the reason that uh, I like the place where I teach so much uh, is that when a department chair or a, you know, vice president of academics or whoever else uh, poses a question, you know, why is it that you're doing it this way? They actually listen to how I answer. And if I can provide a reasonable explanation, then they say, okay, great. Keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I. Um, so I mean, I, I recognize. I recognize not everyone is that lucky, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, I, once again, I realize that I, you know, it's better to be lucky than to be good. <laughs> I think that was Richard Petty, wasn't it? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, I. Um, One of them NASCAR drivers. <laughs> I would. I would also. You know. You know. That's kind of sort of my experience as well here. Um, I. You know recently was promoted to associate professor. Um, and it, I guess, it uh-huh. goes, I guess it goes into effect in the summer technically, but I got the letter. Okay, uh, cool. so, <laughs> but the, uh, is this the first announcement publicly? Uh, probably on the state. I've been, I think I announced hey! it on, 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 you know, online spaces, Twitter and Facebook, and stuff. but yeah, but <laughs> you know, one of the things that, I mean, was made clear to me is that they appreciate, you know, 
I think outside the box a little bit and kind of do things yeah. and, and, and that things they were looking for in my promotion documents were exactly what you were saying. Um, like I have reasons <laughs> for doing uh, what I'm doing. Yeah, right. Yeah. And I, and I can justify them and I can, you know, in various ways show success or failure. Right. Uh, in, in that way. And so, um, and right, I'm also right. to, um, willing to admit when something sucks uh, and I've failed miserably. Oh, sure, um, sure. <laughs> I think that's also important. And, yeah, and, and, and you know, as, as I said before, I mean, I think that you miss out on some really good stuff if unreflectively you are adopting every new technology that comes down the pipe. Yeah. I also think you miss out on good stuff if unreflectively, unreflexively, you reject everything that comes down the pipe. Yes. It, you know, and again, it, 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 it seems like a, a stupid thing for a, a professor to have to say, but you should probably investigate something before you evaluate it. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Right. Um, <laughs> and even concepts that you hold dear, like, I mean, teaching right. English, there are lots of people who don't teach English who are much more concerned about like correctness and, uh, and that sort of thing than I am. Right. And, oh, and, I, absolutely. Think, and yeah. I think it's because it's something they've never reflected on themselves because they went on to uh -huh. whatever discipline they're in. Right. And, uh, and I think that they still think of writing well as correct grammar and, and, shrunken white style and stuff by you know what i mean yes, so, yes. which by the way um i'm not sure what order podcasts are going to come out i have a great podcast with ed simon that i recorded over winter break um taking down strunk the dedication to the minimalist style um we're we're all in oh, favor good, of uh, purple prose in that uh, i think i'm going to call okay. it that. Um, cool. um but uh so that's uh, a somewhat related topic i my question huh? i guess that i want to get to before we head towards the end here is uh -huh. why is it that the ed tech people are leading us all around? Like why why do they have such a prominent role uh, in what ends up in classrooms and and that sort of thing? Because oh I mean, goodness, yeah. There, there's ed there's like sort of ed theorists, right? I mean the the academic uh -huh. study of education, right? Yes, and, yes, philosophers, psychologists. Yes, and then I mean, there's there, there is not a that there is not a a an academic discipline called education. I mean, the department called education is a department that brings together and synthesizes in better and worse ways, psychology, philosophy, history, yeah. all these sorts of things. Sociology, right? It's kind of like yeah. English. Yes. There's no such thing as English. Yeah. We do criticism. We do rhetoric. We do linguistics. We do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, so I just want to distinguish, I'm not necessarily talking about why the educational theorists are telling us what to do. But some of their work gets condensed and um, packaged by um, educational companies, like um, tech companies, sure, right? Sure. And so how is it and why is it that they seem to be right now in the forefront of what's happening in classrooms? Yeah, yeah. And I would go to, to Kenneth Burke and Richard M. Weaver to start answering that. I think that, you know, in a lot of educational circles, and I don't mean education departments exclusively, I mean colleges, right? I think that progress has become a an ultimate term, mm. uh, to use Richard Weaver's formulation or a God term in Kenneth Burke's formulation, so that if you can demonstrate that something represents progress, then the conversation is over. And likewise, you know, um, if you say that something is data driven, then that is also a an ultimate term. It's a conversation ender, mm. right? Uh, now, of course, being the you the pain in the butt philosophy professor that I am, uh, I always want to say, well, I mean, every human action is data driven because you know we receive what is given. Do dare is the Latin verb behind the noun datum, mm -hmm. right? Um, so, I mean, what we're talking about is not data driven versus non data driven, but which data do we give priority to, right? right? Uh, but because uh, statistical data get the place of pride, uh, therefore, if you do something that, you know, seems to run in the face of what statistics demonstrate, then the burden of proof is on you to demonstrate why you are not doing harm by neglecting that. Mm -hmm. 
So I mean, does that does that a uh, sort of Burkean framework make sense? It, it does actually, right? And and I like the way that you frame it in terms of like I mean, ultimate goods, right? What the ends yeah, of yeah. what we do, um, and somehow we've allowed the ends of what we do to be defined by um, this industry that is there to sell things, right? Right, and, and right. To me, ter- and, and there's the for the sake of, right? It yeah. is for the sake of driving sales. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, if you want to say we need to bring in. Uh, and for instance, you know, I mean, I use uh, chat room technology, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which if you look at the course of human history, that's a technology that's only existed for about 25 years, right? So it's very, very recent uh, in ed tech circles. I mean, it is ancient, mm-hmm. right? But I use it for the sake of being able to give my students feedback as soon as they have composed something mm-hmm. so that they can hear my guidance on it without having to wait hours or even days before they hear it, mm-hmm. right? Because it is uh, a more or less immediate uh, response that they get, uh, for that reason, you know, they can adjust what they are doing. And, you know, what used to take me weeks to, you know, try to inculcate, we can repeat that process several times during a week of class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for that reason, you know, uh, I am a big proponent of chat room technology in class, uh, even though there's very little money to be made off of it because I use an open source, you know, chat program. <laughs> so yeah. no, no one makes a dime off of when I use it. Yeah. I, um, yeah, that's a really, that's a really good point. And I, I think I was inspired a little bit by that. I, this last semester, I was in a room that was just not suitable to teach rhetoric one in, uh, which is what we yeah. call our freshman composition class. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I approve of that name. Yeah. <laughs> I do too. I love that. We have rhetoric one and rhetoric two. And, um, and the, um, the, uh, the the room just was too spaced and everyone's wearing masks and we just couldn't do what we normally do. And so yeah, what I, yeah. I sort of had you in mind and I just sort of started opening up a Google doc that I would share with them and yes. I would, pro- I would project I it, <laughs> I would project uh-huh. it onto the screen, um, give them a paragraph to construct and then have them. So, um, make decisions about, you know, better and worse decisions in those paragraphs and revise. And we would talk oh, about yeah. the difference and that sort of thing. Um, and what's cool about that is you can ask them to explain their reasoning processes. Yeah. And man, are they ever not used to that? Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure if the uh, author of that, you know, Dr. Green. Yeah. Whatever, whoever Dr. Green is, yeah. right. Uh, you know, if Dr. Green talked to my students after we did a long session of those Google Doc ex- exercises, they would tell you. They would tell Doctor Green that I was overworking them and probably psychologically abusing them. <laughs> but because I am asking them to explain their processes, they reflect on their processes, and therefore they become more aware of their processes yeah. and better able to deliberate about their processes. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and and that's something again. I mean, Google is a big, you know, you know, horrible company, right? <laughs> In yeah. many ways, of course, right? But uh, but it also does provide this resource. That I know isn't free entirely. I know that there are ways in which Google is not free, right? Um, that, and oh, that, sure. And sure. that I have allowed myself to be the product that they're selling, right? I, I get uh-huh. that. Um, but, uh, but the product works really well in the classroom, right? And, and, and I yeah, think. Yeah, but that Danny, that's... you and I have also worked our entire academic careers in universities that were bolstered by the GI Bill. Yes. Well, and also. No, I mean. <laughs> All academic no writing, innocent, man. No one's innocent. <laughs> all academic writing is like free labor. I mean, you know what I mean. Just for the prestige that you could maybe get a promotion later on down the road, right? Yeah, and yeah. so, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm I'm very willing to kind of swallow my principles and, and be be gritty, right? But, um, <laughs> but the um, um, but going back, I just want to like harp on one more time the yeah, go ahead. The, the financial incentive to this. I mean, I've never received so many emails. From, I mean, Zoom emails me all the time about, you know, subscribing to something and, and all of these things, right? And, um, to me, Turnitin is like sort of the pinnacle example of, uh, I mean, maybe the pinnacle, the nadir uh, of this, yeah, the, the opposite <laughs> of pinnacle, right? And so uh-huh. the, um, this is a company that it's, I think it's attractive to certain educators because it, 
theoretically makes your work easier. It doesn't for me. Like I find it much harder to work in Turnitin than just okay. in even in Canvas. I'd much rather grade my papers as they appear in Canvas, right? Um, okay. But I understand that other people think, oh, they have these ready-made comments that I can do, um, and I just oh, slap gosh, on. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you can make a Word document if you just want to say the same thing every time and copy and paste that. You don't need, you know what I'm saying? And so, or you could actually communicate with your students. Well, and that's the bigger problem, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah. in addition to that, so. But in addition to that, this is a company that recently sold itself for how many bazillion dollars, right? Um, based and and its product is the labor of students, right? That have paid yeah, to use it, it is. right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so there's a major ethical problem there that we in yeah. higher ed have not even really considered. And and so many sort of ed tech people um, who work on co college campuses push things like turn it in because of its um, accountability because of its data drivenness, right? Um, and right, so the right. data driven life, if Rick Warren were even more annoying than he is, right? And so, um, but the, uh, um, but the, uh, uh, that's to me a perfect example and something that predicted where we're at right now. And I think it's just getting ultimately worse with the different now spy technologies. I mean, which turn it in is also a spy technology, right? Um, uh, but this yeah, is yeah. Uh, an even worse one. Uh, even worse versions of that are coming down the pike and we're just, blindly following um, what the companies are selling us as educators who really should know better. Um, the first well, people and let me propose a, ca a counter scenario of using Turnitin rather than letting Turnitin use me <laughs> uh, is that, you know, when I set that up, I always set it up so that students can see their Turnitin report. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I always tell them, I mean, you know, if you get a Turnitin report that turned yellow or red, one of the two caution colors, uh, I'm not going to grade it until you email me and say, go ahead and grade that. Mm. I'm always going to give you a chance to go back and fix it, right? Uh, because, you know, I mean, uh, there's a few different scenarios that could emerge from that, right? One of them is that they are using long block quotes that triggered the alarm. Sure. And, you know, if they email me and say, I use a lot of block quotes, but it's my stuff, I'll go ahead and grade it. Right. If, on the other hand, they don't yet understand the professional conventions of citation, then that is an opportunity for them to pose questions to me. Okay, obviously I'm not getting this because Turnitin just gave me a red flag. So, again, I recognize the ethical concern with, you know, using the Turnitin database, okay? But I would also say that it is a tool that I have used so that I can detect which students have internalized to a greater degree and which students have internalized to a lesser degree the conventions of citation in professional writing. Um, I, I I respect that point of view, right? Um, I, I've sort of just made the decision to not use Turnitin um, under okay. unless someone puts a gun to my head, and so far that yeah, hasn't gotcha. happened. Um, and so, I mean, <laughs> I doubt it. I doubt it would get that far, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It yeah. would be something short of that that it would make me do it, probably. There, there might be intermediate steps. Yes, yes. Um, but uh, <laughs> but but I do. I mean, if you're going to use it, I mean, that's a good example of what you're saying in terms of using it intentionally and pedagogically uh, minded. Right. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, that to me is, is, um, is about the best way I can think of to use right. it. And, um, and then to go back to that, for the sake of question, are you using turn it in for the sake of catching the sinners hmm. or are you using it for the sake of educating those who haven't yet internalized the professional practices? And those are not the only two options. I grant that. Yeah. But I would say that one of those options is better than the other. Yeah. I mean, I've heard stories of people who, you know, base grades on the number that Turnitin generates in terms of the plagiarism. And that is a terrible way to use it. Yes. yes. That, that is like, I mean, <laughs> to me, if anybody should have a gun to their head, it's that, that guy, right? And so, um, but, uh, but yeah, no, I think that... Um, that's a place where I, I respect your position, but I turn it in is so like problematic for me. I, I would just rather um, let them slip one past me sometimes. <laughs> than, than, oh, than, sure, sure, sure. Surveil yeah. them in that way. Well, and, and like I said, that's why I don't use it for law enforcement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that's interesting. Um, and if it if it if I could get my mind past the uh, contributing to that database uh, and compelling yeah, no, 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 students no, no. and I, I want to grant that is a legitimate concern, and I I do not claim uh, innocence on that one. Yeah, 
No, that's a good point. Uh, something that challenges me there. So we do subscribe to that here on campus, and I. I but I, I will also say, and it. I mean, just and, and I realize we're running up on time, but you, you've you've spurred another thought yeah. that I want to yeah. bring yeah. across to the listeners. Good. Is that I mean, this also brings up a a conversation that we should have more regularly and more rigorously than we do, and more dialectically, because I'm always about the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Is why do we? ask students to write in the first place. Yes. Right. Yes. And this is why I always tell my students and I, and I made a, uh, a video that I always post on my canvas courses about why we cite, why we write. And the section where I talk about plagiarism, I always say that, you know, I mean, too many books, including the, the book that, uh, I'm required to assign as one of my fresh freshman comp books, which I totally resent, but, (laughs) um, frames cheating in terms of, uh, well, you know, I mean, professors are good at this and they will catch you. Ha ha ha. (laughs) And I always say that's not the reason not to cheat. The reason to do it is that a college education is supposed to form you as a certain kind of practitioner. If you are turning in somebody else's labor, that work has not formed you yet, but you are telling people by sending that transcript out that it has what people are going to need down the road is the real version of that practitioner, not the fake version. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I try to, and again, you know, I know some people say, well, I mean, trying to appeal to, uh, you know, abstract ideals with college students as a sucker's game. And that's fine. I'll be the sucker on this one. I, I will absolutely play that sucker's game every time, but I want to appeal to their souls, not to their fear of getting caught. Yeah. I mean, I would rather be a sucker for that than a sucker for capitalism, right? I mean, and you just, I, I, I would rather do that and know that I'm a fool than just to train someone to be a good, obedient worker, right? You know, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. to me, that's, that's, uh, yeah, I, I'm with you there. Um, and no, I, I completely agree. And, uh, and I, I also tell them, honestly, I'm less concerned about your honesty, um, than I am just about sort of, um, the, the thought process that you, uh, the thought processes you go through in engaging with other people's thoughts. Yeah, right? your and, your development as a citizen, as a practitioner, yeah. as a human being. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'm going to catch the person who just waited to the last minute and then found a paper on Google thinking that I don't have Google, right? And so, yeah, um, yeah. And, and when their work obviously wasn't theirs. I mean, yeah, I, this is why I don't need to turn it in, right? It's like <laughs> I've seen right, enough right. of your writing throughout the semester. I know this isn't yours, right? And, and, I, and I guess here's my thing is that – there are enough, and I'm going to call them sub-communities at my college, and you know, you know this well enough because you were there for a few years, where people will pass written assignments hand-to-hand so yeah. that they don't show up on Google. Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, you know, again, the reason I do that is not because I am, you know, uh, Dudley Do-Right trying to catch Boris Badenoff, although I, th- I think I'm mixing Bullwinkle sketches there. Um <laughs> But because I genuinely do want to tell the truth when I put a grade on that transcript that this person has undertaken the disciplines that should form them into a certain kind of citizen, a certain kind of practitioner, you know, a certain kind of human being. And so, I mean, you know, to the extent that they are not undertaking that discipline, then I am at the very least complicit in that lie, even if I'm not the primary agent of the deception. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, and I think that this is something that these new technologies and these new kind of like rote rubrics that we're supposed to follow in following quote yes. unquote best practices, it can't account for what you're describing right there, right? No, and, not at all. And, not and, at all. And that to me is where I kind of, um, become a little bit more of a Luddite, but like you, I'm very, uh, I use technology more than most people, right? Um, in terms yeah, of teaching. Yeah. So I'm, it's not as if I'm against using educational technology on some kind of principle. Um, I'm against using it in ways that are counterproductive, right? And, and, um, right, right. for me, this article kind of opened up that conversation, right? And I knew we agreed with way more than we disagreed with and that we were just sort of, <laughs> we had sort of two different angles, um, there. And so, but I was oh, really, sure, sure. I'm glad you reminded me, um, to have this, uh, this, this, uh, this conversation. My, you know, my brain is uh, full of things right now. And so oh, that's fine. That's uh, fine. <laughs> this has been very interesting and very, um, always great to talk to you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, any, any final thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I guess, you know, if, if I have to give, you know, a, uh, a uh, benediction as we head out the door of the church here, 
uh, you know, if you are a professor, reflect on everything that you ask a student to do for your class. How is it forming them? Because it's forming them some way. Mm-hmm. Be sure that it is a way that you have reflected on rather than a way that you haven't. Yeah. And if this is something you don't want to read, then think about how you write it, right? Then think about how the assignment goes. Like, I mean, I'm all for having yeah, them yeah. write things that I'm not necessarily reading closely, but, um, but there has to be a good reason for me to do that. Right. And I think so much right, of what we right. are asking them to produce in terms of the work is stuff that we're not really interested in reading, frankly. And so, right. um, and so I think that that's another addendum that I would add on to that. No, I completely agree. Nathan, I, I just want to say I learned, um, having known you, um, as long as I have now, um, so much from you about teaching and everything else, right? Um, you're a very, uh, influential <laughs> person in my life. Um, I, I concur with, uh, I just want to, you know, support the quality of that seminar that I sat through. What was that in 2012? I think when I, uh, first yeah, arrived at Emmanuel. 2012 13. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, that was, I, I still have the books that you, uh, had us read there. I'm constantly going back and thinking about that material. That was, is one of my favorite parts of my job still, Danny. So, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I am glad Emmanuel continues to ask me to do that because, uh, that is just some rewarding work, especially, uh, in cases where, you know, we do get new professors who, you know, have never been asked before to reflect on why is it that you assess your students this way rather than that way. Yeah. No, I think it's great. Um, you're great. Uh, I really appreciate your thoughts. Thank you. I, you're I, great too, Dave. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Uh, it's been great talking to you. Everybody listening, uh, feel free to reach out to the show. Um, Nathan is no longer on Twitter, but uh, I am at Danny P. Anderson. <laughs> and uh, and if you're already Facebook friends with me, um, you know, reach out. And if you're not, I mean, send a request with a little note. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll accept you. So, uh, but uh, and I can't speak for Nathan there. But uh, uh, and you can find both of us uh, reach us through the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where we proud members um, with all the gang there. Yes, indeed. So, all right. And for uh, Nathan Gilmore, my name is Danny Anderson. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast.